Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is Season 2, Episode 5, Part 2 of A Target on Your Back. This podcast is intended for adult audiences, so please use caution. Season 2 of Aggravating Circumstances is the story of Elisha Baxter. This is a continuing story, so if you're just joining us, I recommend you hit pause, go back and start with episode one of this season. We will wait for you. So it's always been a target on our family back. I mean, I remember one time they arrested one of my brothers and they had his bicycle and they drove by our house and they got on a loud speaker and said, look who we got. Miami-Dade police are investigating a deadly motorcycle crash. A man and a woman were on a motorcycle on that overpass. At some point, that motorcycle hit the overpass wall, forcing the two victims to the ground below. Uh, There was no evidence that at any point any city man police officer chased anybody at a high rate of speed. A female officer pulled out in front of him and clipped his bike. Friends and family of those who were injured and killed say it was because of a high-speed police pursuit. The department says there's no evidence of that, and the police union says it's just flat-out not true. On May 27th of 2018, while driving back from Virginia Key through Miami, Yaline Gonzalez and her husband, Giannis Cruz Pena, were driving their black Kawasaki with a group of other motorcyclists known as the Dade County Riders when they went off an overpass. Giannis Cruz Pena was killed in the crash and Yaline suffered a fractured pelvis and broken leg. She told police that she was pursued by a police officer who forced them off the road. Miami police issued statements saying that no police cruiser was involved and any police responding to the scene were actually responding to the crash and not chasing the motorcycle. The police union flat out said it was a lie that her statements were not true. After an investigation, detectives and police blamed speeding as the cause of the accident. However, subsequent investigations revealed lots of contradicting information There were investigations done by four different groups, the Miami Police Department Professional Compliance Bureau, the Miami Police Department Internal Affairs Unit, the Miami State Attorney's Office, and the Miami Civilian Investigative Panel. The first three all decided that the accident was caused by speeding. However, other motorcyclists at the scene shared videos that showed that Ms. Gonzalez was telling the truth. The Miami Civilian Investigative Panel said they were unable to authenticate the videos. There was lots of conflicting information. Miami police did not record that Mr. Cruz Pena had a GoPro camera, which he did. A traffic homicide supplemental report recorded that he did have the GoPro camera. And there was lots of conflicting information with the wife's testimony. She gave several statements, which were then recorded in patently false ways. 
A board member of the Civilian Investigative Panel said the investigation was incomplete, which they suspected was, quote, to hide what happened that was improper, end quote. There was a huge amount of back and forth between agencies and investigations in this fatal motorcycle crash. After initial investigations were either closed or inconclusive, a fourth investigation revealed a cover-up. A Miami New Times article is entitled, Miami Cops Hid Testimony from Survivor in Fatal Bike Crash, quote, cover-up, panel says. A bit from that article. When Giannis Cruz Pena crashed his motorcycle into an I-95 retaining wall, flew off an overpass and died May 27, 2018, the friends who biked alongside him said he had been chased off the highway by Miami police officers. At first, Miami Police Department spokespeople claimed they had no knowledge a chase had occurred and the city's police union accused Cruz Pena's friends of lying. But earlier this year, Miami's Civilian Investigative Panel, an independent board of local residents who review complaints against cops, uncovered damning evidence suggesting Miami cops contributed to Cruz Pena's death. Some panel members even called the police response a cover-up. Now the panel has uncovered additional evidence that raises further questions about MPD's response that day. Cruz Pena's wife, Yileen Gonzalez, was on the back of his bike the entire time. And while she told investigators that two Miami cops were chasing their bike and cornered them into the wall they hit, the traffic homicide report written by Officer Hernandez grossly misrepresented sworn statements she gave the cops that day. Quote, Staff finds Officer Hernandez's representation of what Ms. Gonzalez stated in each of her three statements does not correlate with the proper or any of the statements she provided. Additionally, we find it is the information Officer Hernandez left out of his traffic homicide report that appears to mischaracterize what Ms. Gonzalez stated, end quote. In July, the CIP uncovered some astounding facts about the case, including that basic crash evidence did not wind up on official reports, that MPD's Internal Affairs Unit hid or ignored evidence that Miami cops were conducting a traffic enforcement operation nearby that day, and that a GoPro camera Cruz Pena wore on his helmet allegedly collected no crash footage and somehow recorded only after he hit the ground. Despite the fact that police said they responded to the crash one minute after it occurred, MPT has never named any officers who might have chased Cruz Pena that day, even though his fellow bikers recorded video of what they say is at least one Miami police car traveling at more than 100 miles per hour and buzzing the motorcyclist. MPD even claimed it has no GPS data matching any of its cops to the crash location that day. Internal Affairs, the division inside the police department that investigates citizen complaints, claimed it was unable to identify any of the officers involved in the incident. Gonzalez, meanwhile, survived the crash despite sustaining a broken femur and pelvis. Police investigators spoke with her at Jackson Memorial Hospital's Ryder Trauma Center mere hours after the crash. CIP staff members noted in July that the recordings of Gonzalez's statements included far more information than what officers had written. For one, she told the cops there were multiple cars involved that day, but Hernandez refers to only a single cruiser in his report. Oddly, Gonzalez also did not discuss eating or drinking anything, but Hernandez writes she denied ingesting alcohol. Gonzalez said she remained conscious throughout the incident. At one point in the interview, Hernandez himself asked if there were two police cars following her and her husband, and she stated that two more cops then appeared. They were pushing us over to the side, she told Hernandez from the hospital. She added, once we got 
to go over the side, we were going here and they were basically cornering us and it was stuck to us. And that's when my husband was close to the curve and I don't know what happened in the curve. We flew and the bike stayed up. The police report, however, made no mention of multiple cop cars or Gonzalez contention that any officers had cornered them just before the bike crash into the retaining wall. Gonzalez said she felt a bump before her husband lost control of the bike. Hernandez re-interviewed Gonzalez less than two hours later. She again told him there appeared to be three or four cop cars involved and that one officer had been bumper to bumper with the bike right before it crashed. Again, those statements did not appear in Hernandez's recounting of the events. In a third interview, Gonzalez stated the cops never turned on their sirens or instructed her husband to stop. When third of police chases end in crashes, and those incidents often involve innocent bystanders or people attempting to evade low-level charges. So for decades, cops have been instructed not to chase suspects at high speeds unless the pursuit is absolutely necessary. MPD, for example, instructs officers to engage in high-speed pursuits only when a violent felony has occurred. After the scathing July CIP meeting, which various panel members called the police response incompetent, shoddy, seemingly flawed by design, and a cover-up, MPD said it would reinvestigate the case. The new probe remains ongoing. In the meantime, CIP staff this month recommended sustaining negligence of duty violations against Hernandez. The full panel will vote on those charges next Tuesday. This was an article from November of 2019. So this was a year and a half after the crash. Ten years before the death of Giannis Cruz Pena in 2008, Miami police was involved in the fatal motorcycle crash of Elisha's older brother, Simeon Richard Baxter, or Richie. I'm going to let his other brother, Mark, tell you more about that. So how do you think all of that affected Elisha? Well, it clearly affected him enough to where I wouldn't say I'd say that affected him, but I wouldn't say that affected him as much as the death of my brother. So tell me about your brother. My brother, Richard, he was um, he he was the guy needs for speed. He loves he loved his motorcycles. Um, He rode bikes. um, Now, was he older than you? Yes. Yes. He was uh, he loved to ride the bike. He loved uh, racing. He would go and race them. And I guess, uh, and this also happened when I was incarcerated as well. What happened, I guess he got into a chase with the officers. I, I'm not too sure about the, how that all, how that all went down, but he got into a, a, a chase with them and they, which they're not supposed to chase a motorcycle. That's against the Florida law. You're supposed to follow closely enough, you know, and try to pinpoint and you, you know, use your overhead eye, you know, the helicopter and everything. You're supposed to use that. That's, that's how you're supposed to handle it. Well, they radioed in ahead and a female officer pulled out in front of him and clipped his bike. Oh my God. Yeah. They clipped his bike. He went over and fell on his neck. His spine shot through his brains. Uh, spinal cord went through the spine a bone went up and jabbed right through his brain. I mean, it killed him on sight. It killed him on sight. And that right there shook Elisha. That right there, he was very, 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 because after I was already locked up, all he had was, you know, um, Richard, 
Richard was already working so hard trying to get lawyer fees for my case, yeah. trying to get me home. Him, Richard, uh, Elisha, Richard, and you know, and everybody else chipping in and everything. They were all, all, all working very hard trying to get me home. And we lose Richard. And it's crazy because the way I found out, <laughs> it was just, it was just so crazy. The way I found out about it, it was on the, I found out on the news. Oh no. Right. I found out on the news and it, it was, it was devastating for our family. And that right there triggered Elisha. Elisha didn't trust the police officers. He was, he, and then, and it's crazy because he was on pace to actually be one. He was going to be a police officer, Elisha. Yes, he was. He, that was his, okay. He had, I think he had just finished medical building in Kobe. Yeah. So this, this was a good kid we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about a kid that wasn't in the streets. He was a good kid. He was a school kid. That triggered him. That right there, you know, took him away from wanting to do law. You know, that would, that hit him very hard. And then the other case that I remember that, I mean, I had to really be in his face a lot to talk to him a lot about it. But the Trayvon Martin case, really, he just could not understand it. He could not understand. And I told him, I tried to warn him. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you right now, I was in there, dude. It's not that that guy is going to walk. He's like, no way. That's not right. That's not right. I'm like, dude, in the courts of law, it's not about what's right. It's about simply what you can prove. And if you can't, if you don't have enough evidence to prove, they are going to go with what they want to go with. And that case is another case that kind of pushed him, kind of made him really step away from wanting to be deal, wanting to deal with law enforcement. So when when Richard died, you said there was a. Did you guys have like a wrongful death suit or what? What happened? Yes. So the family, the, uh, my mother and father took the, to, took them to court, and Richard left back four children, oh. and they only settled out. They only they only offered them gave them fifteen thousand dollars. That's crazy. Fifteen dollar. That's what a that's what a black man's life is worth. Oh. Fifteen thousand dollars is what they. They won. Oh my goodness! So you went to prison for, or you didn't even go to prison. You went to jail, <laughs> and and you know, until you pled out for something that was an accident, and mm-hmm. then your brothers killed because they basically ran him over with a police car on a motorcycle. Oh my goodness! Wow. So it's basically been honest. It's basically been a target painted on our family's back. Mm-hmm. We we were a large we we are a very large family. It's seven boys and seven girls and two adopted. Whoa! Wow! Yeah. <laughs> we're a huge family. So and we're very like we're we're knitted like we're together like we are for each other. It was always a problem with our family and the police officers. I got slapped around simply because. Uh, they were beating on one of my brothers and I, they were beating on one of my brothers. I was like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're just beating them. Mm, I was probably like 15 years old, 15, 16. And the officers grabbed me and threw me in the car too, you know? And then me and my brothers going to jail. We get to the police station. They were like, we've been wanting you. We've been wanting you. Baxter talking to my older brother. We've been wanting you. And I'm trying to remember his name. I'm trying to remember his name. Garcia. 
Garcia is his name, Officer Garcia. And Garcia, like, he had, like, a bunch of teeth in his mouth or whatever. And he was just talking smack. And, you know, like, you, you, you talk smack. You know, they talk smack back and forth or whatever. So he, he kind of was, like, jokingly talking smack with me. And I was jokingly talking smack back to him. Well, and what he did was he he couldn't keep up with me. So what he did was he handcuffed my brother to the opposite wall and handcuffed and he took my handcuffs off and he slapped me. He slaps me and he's like, get up, do something. Get up, do something, you little shit. Do something. You talking that shit? Do something, you little shit. And my brother's on the opposite wall. It's like, bro, don't move. Don't move, bro. They're trying to kill you, bro. Don't move. Do not move. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do nothing. I took the slaps. And he whispers in my ear. He's like, he's like, whenever I see you in Leisure City, whenever I see you, I'm going to kill you. It will be me and you. Oh, my God. And so my brother was like, bro, when you get it, wherever you go, get to the attorney fairs. Tell him, tell him, tell him this. Tell him that. Tell him exactly what he said. So it's always been a target on our family back. I mean, they, I remember one time they arrested one of my brothers and they had his bicycle and they drove by our house and they got on a loud speaker and said, look who we got. Oh, my God. Why do you think was, why do you think that is? Because we were a large family. We were a large family simply because we have gotten into it, gotten into it with them. Um, we never allowed them to come around and just bully us around. We fought back. That's truth. We did. We fought back in protection of our family. Um, we will. We won't let them in the gates. They would come to the house. The house had fourteen bedrooms, <laughs> and so they would come to the house. We're like, no, you're not. You're not coming up in here unless you have a warrant. You know, it's just certain things they just added out for us. Wow. They had it out for us to the point that when I was thirteen years old. It was a guy actually jacked Elisha up and he was like seven, eight years old and tried to accuse Elisha for stealing horseshoes. But the guy had his had his horseshoe, the game out next to the road and Elisha just picked it up and was playing with it and trying to trying to play the game. And he came big guy came and jacked my brother up and everything. And a big thing happened with that. And the officers. Uh, when, when we all can, we all, we're, we're going to come to each other defense. We all came around there and, uh, my mother, my father, all of us came around there. The officer actually, um, he hit me like about seven, eight times in the head with that big walkie talkie they used to carry back in the days. It split my head. I, I got a scar in my head from it, oh my split God. my head wide open and took me to jail, took my mother to jail, took my brother Joseph to jail, took my nephew to jail. Um, and then it comes out uh, when we go to juvenile court and everything, they drop charges. And they this, just drop. Them. This was all about Elisha playing the guy's horseshoe set. Yes. And oh then they, just, they just drop the charges. And then they send their police chief in there and the police chief like, oh, the, the officer was having a bad day from a previous call. So we're just going to drop these charges and this and that and whatever. And so my mom actually started up a lawsuit, but then they would harass. They would harass us. They would find us. They would stop us. They would pull us over all because of the lawsuit. Oh, my goodness. Do you think all this played a role when Elisha got arrested? Oh, yes, I definitely do. Because our name, our name, they they were never able to truly get 
anyone or or to stick one of us with such a major crime or anything like that. They it was always them being petty and they're 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 getting too angry and they're doing things and they they it, when it goes to court it gets thrown out. So it was definitely based off okay Mark Baxter went in there we tried to stick him with second degree murder he came out with just only six years this one you know this and that um we're gonna stick you you're the one we're gonna get the, the judges the judges all of them they, they they you know it's it's an ongoing thing with them they're constantly it, it got so bad between us and the police that they would have to send the state trooper along with the police when they came to my home one time they ran up in our house and this is why we locked the gates <laughs> because one time they just ran up in our house, bogarted their ways through and I was asleep. All the, all of us younger kids were sleeping. They ran through with guns pointed at all the kids. Oh my God. What for? Uh, talking about they were looking for somebody, but it wasn't one of y'all. No. <laughs> oh we, my goodness. We have a mark. We have a mark. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're black and white. And anybody that look anything like that has to be one of our brothers. That's how they think. So if, if, they, if, they, if somebody run away from them that looks like a mixed or black and white or whatever it is, <laughs> if, they, if they're a light-skinned black man, they're going to come straight to my, our house, my mother's house. Oh, it's one of your sons. it got to be one of them. it got to be one of them. So, and that's just how it was with us with them. It was always problems with us and the police simply because they had got out of line too many times and we just didn't let them get out of line. We actually took them to court. A couple of times, sounds like. Yes. we and, yeah. and if it was really something big, if it was really something big, all right, if it was really something like to the point that we we were actually wrong, wrong, like why are they dropping them when we get in there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, the officer was just having a bad day because something happened to him yesterday. That's why he beat you in the head and you have a scar, you know, like, right. so as we're as just a, a 12 year old kid. You beat him in the head because he was having a bad day. Yeah. Oh, that's OK. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know, and I, I hate. So so I'm a white girl. Right. And I've never had these kinds of experiences, but I keep talking to people like you and doing these interviews and I keep hearing what happens with people of color and the police and I hear it over and over and over again and it's like um, uh, my season one I don't know if you've listened to any of it at all but season one's about a guy named Destry and Destry's son who's Destry Jr. who goes by Quinn told me very similar stories <laughs> and he was talking about you know like getting pulled over for not using a turn signal and going to jail and i'm like what do you mean going to jail for a turn signal like like that doesn't happen to white people like it just doesn't and he's like oh laura every time i get pulled over i go to jail <laughs> and i'm like i just can't even imagine and then and then and then he's and he's really a funny guy right and he says laura he's like that's why we run <laughs> He's like, nobody wants to go to jail. That's why we run. And that, yes, I do hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> and that just, it just echoes in my head every time I hear these stories. It's like, that's why we run. And, yes. and I think that that really plays a role with some of these self-defense cases because I've been listening to a podcast and it's called Self-Defense Gun Stories. And, you know, if you're going to carry a weapon and you're going to have, you know, Elisha had a weapon, Destry had a weapon. Everybody wants a weapon, right? So if you're going to carry one, it talks about if you are in a self-defense situation, you want to win the call to 911. 
because whoever mm-hmm. calls 911 first is going to be considered the victim whether they right. are whether they are or not <laughs> and they're like mm-hmm. you want you want to win the call to 911 but if you have generations of mistrust for police because you've been beaten about the head and abused and wrongfully accused and chased and all of these things like what on earth would you call them you know like that's the well, last thing that, that's going to occur to you i wouldn't want to call them you know right. and no. It's not just that, though. Here's the other part about it. You can be the first one to call them. But if you're a black man, you're the first one to call them. They're coming straight at you anyways. I'm going to interrupt here for a moment to recognize how efficiently and effectively Mark slammed me on my white privilege. I mean, listen to what I just said to him. Like, I wouldn't call the police either. And he says, well, even if we call the police, we're still the target. Wow. Like that, I I had to really sit down because, and I've, I actually mentioned this in a previous episode about this exact conversation, was in my little white world, if something happens and I'm in a self-defense case and I call 911, well, of course, they're just going to believe me. And we have so many, so many cases where someone, a person of color calls police and are then targeted by police, and so often it ends in tragedy. So while I'm talking about white privilege, I want to read a little bit from an article about what white privilege really is. This is from tolerance.org. This is an article written by Corey Collins, and it says, what is white privilege really? This is an excellent article if you are interested in this subject. I'm just going to read a small section of it because it goes into a lot of things. And one of them, it says, white privilege as the, quote, power of the benefit of the doubt. The power of normal goes beyond the local CVS. White people are also more likely to see positive portrayals of people who look like them on the news, on TV shows, and in movies. They're more likely to be treated as individuals rather than as representatives of or exceptions to a stereotyped racial identity. In other words, they are more often humanized and granted the benefit of the doubt. They are more likely to receive compassion, to be granted individual potential to survive mistakes. This has negative effects for people of color who, without this privilege, face the consequences of racial profiling, stereotypes, and lack of compassion for their struggles. In these scenarios, white privilege includes the facts that white people are less likely to be followed, interrogated, or searched by law enforcement because they look suspicious. White people's skin tone will not be a reason people hesitate to trust their credit or financial responsibility. If white people are accused of a crime, they are less likely to be presumed guilty, less likely to be sentenced to death, and more likely to be portrayed in a fair, nuanced manner by media outlets. The personal faults or missteps of white people will likely not be used to later deny opportunities or compassion to people who share their racial identity. This privilege is invisible to many white people because it seems reasonable that a person should be extended compassion as they move through the world. It seems logical that a person should have the chance to prove themselves individually before they are judged. It's supposedly an American ideal, but it's a privilege often not granted to people of color with dire consequences. For example, programs like New York City's now-abandoned stop-and-frisk policy target a disproportionate number of Black and Latinx people. People of color are more likely to be arrested for drug offenses despite using drugs at a similar rate to white people. 
Some people do not survive these stereotypes. In 2017, people of color who were unarmed and not attacking anyone were more likely to be killed by police. Those who serve, and that was 2017, this article was written in 2018, clearly that hasn't changed. Those who survive instances of racial profiling, be they subtle or violent, do not escape unaffected. They often suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and this trauma in turn affects their friends, families, and immediate communities who are exposed to their own vulnerability as a result. Let's just think for a minute about Mark's experience. He's so confident and casual in his recitation of being beaten in the head by a police officer when he was a child, so much so that it left a scar, arrested with another brother for nonsense, and then unhandcuffed in a police station and physically beaten by a police officer in an attempt to get him to fight back so they could do what? Beat him? Kill him? Arrest him? Lock him up? Police officers went through their house with guns looking for someone who wasn't them. So they had to lock their gate. The police department hit his brother on a motorcycle resulting in his death. He was accused of murder for a terrible accident and spent six years in jail waiting for a trial that never happened. And now Elisha is serving a 32-year prison term for a very selfless act of self-defense after he was brutally stabbed. This is serious, serious trauma inflicted by taxpayer-paid and employed public servants that are supposed to serve and protect. And you cannot ignore the racial part of it. Okay, back to my interview. Yeah, they're going to come at you. They don't care that you, that only works that with the whites where I'm the first one called. So, you know, that don't work because initially their mindset is it obviously the black person is the one that's causing the problems. Yeah. Well, and we've so, got what, like five or six examples of that just in the past several months where someone called like the one guy that called the police because somebody else was beating a girl and the police get there and they shoot him. The guy that called the police right? because he was a black man. Yes. That works because initially that's their that's their way of thinking. Now I have a I have a buddy of mine um, that's an officer. Uh, he's actually him and Elijah are best friends. I, I don't I don't want to put his name out there, but he's an officer, and he, it's not not in the state of Florida. He's a, he's their best friends in 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 New Orleans, and we was raised in the same church. Like this guy, like. He he is he is really really he's a really cool guy. We ran together, hung out together. You know we did bad things as kids. You know, <laughs> you know fighting and and running around. But this is the, the the thing of it is he hasn't forgotten where he come from. He hasn't forgotten or he doesn't carry that. Um, right now in his department, he's probably the only one that they trust to go into the hood and speak to him because he can speak to them and he don't judge them from uh, conversations uh, like for example i walked up into a clothing store i had a blazer that i was trying to match a pair of pants with so of course i have my tag on, on the brand new blazer i bought from a different store and i'm like i'm gonna take this in there and i'm going to match these this blazer to a pair of pants so i walk up and the first person there is an officer 
I walk up to the officer and as I'm walking into the store, I'm like, excuse me. I said, I'm walking in with this right here. I'm just trying to match this. He's like, I don't care. Go talk to them. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Well, that didn't work out the way I planned it, but okay, I'll go talk to them over there. So then we go and talk to the cashier and they're like, oh, that's fine. Go ahead. You know, um, but I, I, it's to the point that you have to take so you, you have to take extra steps, extra measurements so that you you're, you're not t- attacking a, a certain way. For example, I had my son in the backseat of my truck. I had to have this big Ford F-350. It's a huge truck. And I get pulled over by the police. He says I'm five miles over. Five miles over. Five Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's a two hundred and ninety dollar ticket. <laughs> so for five miles over because my truck has a six inch lift on it, 32 inch tires, you know, it's like one of the white guys trucks, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the big four by four white guys trucks, you know, that the rednecks be having most of the time, you know, and then he sees this black guy driving, he pulls me slap over, he pulls me over and he's like, uh, give me the registration. Let me see that you own this and all this stuff. And I'm like, uh, sir, okay. Well, sure. Let's go through the steps. And I'm like, I'm going to reach over here. He's like, oh, cut the bullshit. Just fucking do it. And I'm like, dude, I am. I said, listen, sir, you already know what's going on. I'm not going to you. I'm not going to do anything without first of letting you know what I'm going to do. I said, now again, I am reaching to the side. I also have my eight-year-old son in the back seat. I am reaching to the side to grab my wallet. Go ahead and do it. Oh, it was just so horrible the whole way. It's like even if you're trying to uh, uh, make it to where there's no issue, you're polite, you're cool, you're, you have everything together, that, that don't matter. They're already ready to shoot you. Period. They're going to shoot you. And the best the best thing you can do is what I do now. I I keep a body cam myself. I purchase body cams. Uh, yes, they're only 50 bucks. I, I'm, I'm telling everyone they're only 50 bucks. You can purchase a body cam for $50, 54 bucks. Go on uh, Amazon and and purchase yourself a body cam and, and just have that with you because, you know, you're going out for a ride just to be safe on your, you know, it's, it's, it's the perfect way to keep everything going, you know, and. I just have to pause here for a moment. It took me a little while to absorb the fact that Mark just said he wears a body camera and he encourages others to wear them. And I had to take a moment to consider whether I had, whether it had even ever dawned on me to wear a body camera or to wear one in case I have an interaction with law enforcement. And while I do have a GoPro that I wear on my helmet when I ride horses for fun videos, the answer is no. I've never for a moment considered that wearing a body camera was something that I needed to do. And so I decided to ask some other people I know. And for the record, I'm white and they are all white, whether they had thought about wearing a body camera. 
Have you ever thought about wearing a body camera? No. Have you ever thought about wearing a body camera? A body camera, no. But I have considered installing a dashboard camera. So have you ever considered wearing a body camera while driving? No. Mark is not the only person of color who has mentioned body cameras to me. I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions about what that means about our interactions with law enforcement. And now I return to Mark's interview. So he didn't start really, truly complying to the most part until I was like, hey, I, I do have a body cam on. And, you know, I don't give a shit about that. And it's just it's just it's the tension. It's high. It's so high. Wow. That's crazy. So. So you, okay, so you spent six years in jail, you got uh-huh. out, and you, how quickly did you move away? You said you left. You're like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> when did you leave? So I think I spent a year. I met my wife. Um, I met my wife. Uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, we had a son, and by the time he, I, we had a son, so I probably stayed there about two years, two, two, two and a half years, two, about two, two or three years. I stayed there. It was like three years, I think, mean, if I'm not mistaken. And then after that, I called my sister in Ohio. I was like, "Hey, I, I don't like, I don't like, uh, you know, the Target. It seems like the Target still hasn't disappeared. The Target still. Ha- they will pull my brothers over and be like, where is Mark Baxter?' Oh my God." <laughs> yeah, we're going to get him. And I'm already locked up. They're like, he's locked up. What are you going to get him for? <laughs> you know, and it's like, all right, I'm not interested in this. These guys don't give us a break. They know us. They know our name. They are they're always chasing our name. I'm like, you know what? I don't want my son. I didn't even name my son. My my give my son my name. I only gave him my last name. But I named, I, you know, it's every father's dream to give their son his name and i didn't give my son my my full name i only gave him my last name and that's because there is no way i want my child to ever be subjected to that of what i went through i don't want him to be pinned to that i don't want him to be mistaken and um so yeah i moved out of um moved uh from florida Came up to Ohio and did everything I was destined to do anyways. You know, uh, I, I wasn't trying to be in no troubles and different things like that. I moved out of there. I, it's been over 10 years almost now. I've been in Ohio for like, I've been in Ohio for like uh, six years. And you're a business owner. Yes, ma'am. Right? I'm a business owner. Me and my wife, we got married up here. We have our, we had our second child. We have a daughter. We both, we're 50-50 business owners. We 
opened up our company. We we do uh, commercial and residentials. We, you know, our company is doing quite well. It's doing great. That's fantastic. It's been three years, and we've already surpassed most companies in that area. And and it, it, this whole thing with my brother is like really break my heart because it's like if he was to get if he would have gotten the proper justice, I can see him doing the same thing. He was on the verge of it. Me and him was on conversation. All we talked about was business. He had his lawn service. He had his two. He has two two daughters. His wife. Yeah. Um, he was on the verge of it. He was on the verge of finally leaving there and finally, you know, going someplace else. You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that the Trayvon Martin case really affected him because that's one of the cases that. Well, I think it really affected a lot of us, but it's such an example of how they let a white guy kill an unarmed black teenager and called it stand your ground. But Elisha defended himself and his friend from somebody with a tactical knife who just stabbed him in the chest. And Mm -hmm. that's not that's not stand your ground in self-defense. I mean, like what what the heck is this? They have the choice to choose who they want, they who they want. And, and I'm going to say this, too. This is the Fire On Association. They're the ones pushed for that. Why are they so quiet? They're seeing it. They're seeing it. They pushed for the standing ground there. They pushed for that. Why are they not stepping in for people? I don't understand why they're not saying anything. And they're the ones pushed for it. A huge thank you to Mark Baxter for sharing his story and his trauma and his experiences. We listen to podcasts for entertainment, but the individuals that tell their stories are vulnerable and these stories are painful. So I hope we can all appreciate what a great sacrifice that is to hear their experiences. There is so much to come in Elisha's case and I have some very exciting words directly from Elisha coming up soon. And we'll be getting more into more specifics of the case and what happened in more interviews in our next episodes. And we have an interview with a police officer on self-defense and all kinds of great things to come. So I hope you're enjoying the ride. As always, everyone stay safe. COVID is going crazy. So wear your masks. Don't forget your social distancing. If you can get that COVID vaccine, take your spot. And if you don't want it, I will gladly take your spot to get it. I can't wait to get mine. So everyone stay safe, wear your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. And we will see you next time. If you're enjoying Aggravating Circumstances, please subscribe. Don't forget to give us a five-star review. Tell your friends. These are ongoing stories, so if you have anything you would like to let me know, please reach out at my email at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.